It's Christmas time, which means millions of households around the world are participating in a new annual tradition, watching those Netflix-produced Christmas movies that are seemingly written by a crazed elf with a penchant for genre blending. Do you want to watch a 14th century knight be transported to suburban Ohio where he falls in love with Vanessa Hudgens? Well, Netflix has got you covered, you lovable weirdo. But for those of our Building Tomorrow listeners who could not care less about Netflix's Christmas movie schlock, there's a broader lesson about the shape of the digital economy illustrated by this trend. When the digitization of film, television, and other forms of cultural production first became a mass phenomenon two decades ago, technophobic critics worried that doing so would destroy cultural innovation, leading to lowest common denominator film and TV projects. Studios would push out stuff that had global appeal and stop financing innovative projects. And to an extent, they were correct. I mean, major studios have been risk-averse, financing sequel after sequel, preferring live-action remakes of 80s cartoon nostalgia to new intellectual property. But streaming services like Netflix, Amazon Prime, Apple TV, and the like have unleashed a torrent of innovative, experimental, and just plain weird content that never would have seen the light of day a generation ago. Digitization has given us peak TV and the burst of innovation in film and television. So when your significant other asks you to join him or her on the couch to watch another Netflix Christmas movie, now you can appreciate it as a marker of the radical innovation unleashed by digital technology. It's also the subject of an interview that we recorded earlier this year with economist Joel Waldfogel about his book, Digital Renaissance, What Data and Economics Tell Us About the Future of Popular Culture. We're rerunning the episode today, but we'll be back with new content in the new year. Welcome to Building Tomorrow, a show about how tech and innovation are making the world freer, happier, and more prosperous. Uh, today, we're going to talk about uh, a really actually an interesting topic. Um, if you are a user of a streaming media service, so Netflix, Spotify, uh, uh, Kindle Unlimited, so books, film, television, uh, music, you are a participant in the transformation of media culture today. Uh, and we have with us a special guest, uh, uh, Joel Waldfogel, who's the uh, professor at the Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota, who wrote a book on what he calls the digital renaissance. And he's going to come talk uh, with Aaron and I about this digital renaissance, about this transformation. Um, I think you'll be really interested in what he has to say. Welcome to the show, Joel. Thank you. Happy to be here. Um, now, Joel... I think there's been a lot of – there's been some criticism over the last decade or so in some circles about the rise of digitization and its effects on culture. Uh, people who are concerned about Netflix, Spotify, these kinds of services um, changing uh, culture and cultural production for the worse. What is that conventional wisdom that you're responding to? Well, I think the conventional wisdom is that, that the way we have traditionally gotten our cultural products is that many people pitch these ideas to you know, a group of wise men and women, the, the curators, the gatekeepers who, who decide which ones to greenlight and send them forward. And it's their taste and their investment and their nurture that then delivers us wonderful, wonderful pieces of cultural you know, production. And I mean, there's some truth to that, that you know, that's the way we've traditionally gotten our books and our music and our movies. Uh, and so what, you know, what digitization has done is it, it's made it possible for creators to bring their work to market without the permissions, without the assent, without the investment of these traditional gatekeepers. And I think the concern is that we will find ourselves 
you know, a wash in a mixed metaphors here, but a wash in some pile of silt uh, as opposed to the, you know, the carefully curated gems that we supposedly used to get. We all have that, know that phenomenon of, you know, what's on, what's on Netflix and you're going through, you're like, I don't want to watch any of this stuff, but there's a lot of it. Just the sheer quantity, the silt concerns I think that, that folks have. Um, Okay. So that's the conventional wisdom that we're producing stuff that is of low quality, is um, replacing more desirable television, film, music, books, et cetera. Um, that's one of the topics you touch on um, in Digital Renaissance. What have you seen um, – I guess actually before we get to the argument of the book, what was the motivation for you in writing this piece? I mean throughout it, you mentioned a couple of studies you did um, assessing people's consumption of culture. W at what point did this bigger project, this book project really uh, take hold in your mind? Well, it's interesting. So when when uh, when piracy rolled around, I like a lot of people uh, started studying the impact of piracy on the revenues of the of the in, in particular the music industry, and I studied the film industry as well. And at the time, that was quite an important challenge. It remains an important challenge. And my big concern was, and I think most of the research at the time, the big concern was, well, what's the revenue implication of piracy, and, and what's this going to how is this going to jeopardize continued production of cultural products? Uh, after I did that for a while, it occurred to me that that piracy and its impacts were important. But really, what we were about, if we we're, if we're if our concern is is copyright policy working, the concern ought to be what's happening to the quality of new products and whether we're continuing to get a high number of uh, quality new products. Now that that's a hard question to try to assess. But by again, I began to try to assess that. And I guess you know, on, on to the question of how did the book arise? What happened was I started assessing that in one industry and then another and then another and realized there were some patterns because of the common element of digitization. And so that's what got me. Once you write a, uh, you know, you find yourself pursuing a list of related questions, um, that sort of lends itself to rewriting itself as a book. Now, um, back in the early uh, 2000s, I was, a, I was a high schooler and then a, in college and I had a friend, uh, shout out to Timmy, uh, who he one day he came to class and he showed me his brand new first gen iPod and I don't know, it was like 500 megabytes or something on it. And he said, Paul, I have, I can get any song that exists onto this iPod. And uh, this is post Napster, but he, uh, he had gone to a, some kind of sketchy Russian website where you could pay some fee and access, you know, you could torrent, I, I it's not even pre torrent, but you could download all the music, you know, anything you want. Of course, 500 megabytes only holds so much. Um, <laughs> and the idea of giving someone in some random person in Russia uh, your credit card information seemed utterly, you know, uh, a bad idea. It was a bad financial decision I, f I felt on his part. But I always think of that story whenever I, I hear about uh, digitization and piracy. Uh, and it reminds me of a quote by Gabe Newell, who's the CEO of Valve, which owns Steam, a big you know PC gaming retailer, um, who said in 2011 that piracy is almost always a service problem and not a pricing problem. If a pirate offers a product anywhere in the world, 24-7, purchasable from the convenience of your personal computer, and the legal provider says the product is region locked, will come to your country three months after the US release, and can only be purchased at a brick and mortar store, then the pirate's service is more valuable. Do you agree with Newell? Is privacy, is piracy a customer service problem? 
Well, I think that uh, when when uh, when Napster came along, uh, the traditional players hadn't yet had the opportunity to think about what digitization could do for them. And I think clearly everything available for free is attractive compared to almost anything else. Yeah. You know, I think that, uh, but I, I'm not in the camp of blaming the victim here. I mean, I think piracy is, at least in principle, and, mm-hmm. and in many ways, in fact, a real problem. I think what's interesting about digitization, it started with piracy, and that was everyone's obsession, but rightly so, in 2003, 4, 5. But the other side of digitization is not just loss of revenue, but a change in the cost structure of bringing things to market. And so between the changes in cost and the developments of business models that have made it easier or at least more feasible for the rights holders to try to get revenue, and that brings us back, frankly, to Spotify, Netflix, and bundled options like that, there is on balance a bunch of good news amid the the bad news of piracy or the bad news of digitization, which consists both of piracy and the loss of control by you know gatekeeping elites. Did piracy have a noticeable and anything close to catastrophic effect on content i mean not creators necessarily but those those distributors and kind of the people who were paying and enabling the distribution of content well certainly in music i mean it, it, it's amazing in music recorded music revenue had risen essentially for quite some time and, it, and after 1999 when napster appeared it began to fall and fell continued to fall frankly until about 2 years ago it's only with uh, the development of paid streaming and the real growth of Spotify, that it's finally rebounded a bit. It's well below where it was in 1999. So it, there really was, I think it, one has to say, there was a catastrophic uh, uh, you know, collapse of revenue in recorded music. The only other industry, and it's not an industry in the book, that looks a lot like this is the newspaper industry, where it also revenue just collapsed after about 1999. Now there it wasn't Napster, it was, it was something else. But digitization has has really done a number on some of the cultural and news industries. I, one of the things that's so I I was an undergrad. I my freshman year of um, college was 1997, um, which so that was when I first got broadband, and that was right around when Napster was first a thing. So I was in that you know first generation of like real music piracy. Don't indemnify yourself on the air, Aaron. Uh, <laughs> And one of the th- and one of the things that always struck me was that this was, I mean, we can we can have debates about whether intellectual property is actually property, whether that you know metaphor makes sense and whatnot. But you are when you're when you're pirating something that you would have paid for otherwise, you're in a sense taking revenue away or or stealing from people. But but it never it never like felt like that. Like you didn't, you know, if if you had said, "Hey, it's it's pretty easy to get away with walking into um, a CD store and stealing and just stuffing these things into your jacket and walking out," and you you're probably not going to get caught, and it's you know, and it doesn't take any time to do it. Do you want to do it? Most of us would have been at least unlikely to because it felt yucky. Uh, but but the digital privacy, like, was it is. That kind of cultural notion that we could just do this, that, you know, like at, at one point, like BitTorrent traffic made up some extraordinary amount of overall internet traffic. And, you know, I'm sure most of that was not downloading open source Linux distributions. <laughs> um, right. That that kind of just immediate embrace um, was – do you have any thoughts on that? Like was it just because it's not physical and so it doesn't feel like stealing? Well, I think it's two things. I think partly it's that it, – it, it, I don't have to sort of – 
put stuff under my shirt and, or under my jacket and, and walk out. But partly there's a sort of higher minded justification, which is that many of the things I steal, I was not going to purchase. And so that's a victimless crime. If I was not going to purchase it, then me taking it gives me benefit without depriving the seller of revenue. Of course, that, that's not a very good blanket justification for the practice because there was so much stealing, much of which, but not all of which, would have resulted in purchase, that it was depriving the industry of revenue. And I even, you know, putting aside business considerations, just thinking, you know, like a policymaker or the, you know, the, the enlightened planner, the challenge here is that if revenue falls enough, then maybe people will stop making stuff. And that was a legitimate worry uh, in 2003, 4, 5, maybe even today. Although I think uh, what I've found provides some tonic for that concern, but that was a legitimate worry, particularly when you look at an industry like, like music, where revenue fell so markedly. So um, in the book, it's very clear that music takes the biggest hit um, uh, in terms of falling revenue compared to uh, film and television and, and even books. Um, though I think books also took quite a hit, but uh, you talk, do an ebook section there. Why the difference between industries? Like, like why would um, music and books be hit so much harder than uh, film and television? I think a couple of things. One is that music was first, and so there was there really wasn't other response in place. Um, so music was first. Files were small and easy, therefore, to download and steal. Movie files at the in the early two thousands were still pretty hard to uh, to steal in the sense that they were big. Uh, I mean, it, in some ways, stealing was was more harmful in movies just because per instance of theft, you know. If I steal a movie, it takes me two hours to watch it, just like if I paid for it. And that's going to displace some of my ability to do paid consumption in a way that music didn't. But the volume of stealing was uh, was a lot lower. You know, in television, it's, it's pretty interesting that the, the TV networks saw this stuff happening. You know, YouTube went up in 2005. People started uploading shows. There were lawsuits. But the television networks very quickly decided to put essentially all the good new stuff online. And so they, they did a business response that adapted to the technology. I mean, I'm not sure they would have wanted it to happen in that sequence, but nevertheless, guys who went post-music were able to adapt their strategies in light of the, the the challenging experience the music industry faced. Which, I mean, this makes sense. I mean, the my understanding is that the rate of piracy fell quite drastically uh, uh, once iTunes, essentially, I, iTunes launching, giving people a convenient, easy way of purchasing music or accessing music that didn't involve sketchy Russian websites, getting right. credit card information. And I think even more so with Spotify. Mm, uh, I mean, mm-hmm. The challenge with iTunes, although it was a, a radical, a wonderful radical uh, change, but still even there you had to pay a dollar for a song and many songs turn out to be turkeys. And so it's nice to have a business model that takes my willingness to pay only a, a penny for this song and five cents for that and a dollar for that one and add it all up into my willingness to pay a monthly subscription fee. Well, so, that, so that business model, the streaming business model of, say, Spotify has – I mean clearly it's cut into piracy um, and I mean I have not pirated songs since college because it's – this is much easier. You pay 10 bucks a month and you know you're going to get the right thing. You don't have to sort through weirdly titled stuff on LimeWire and not know what you're going to get. And um, But that, – so that's that's a new business model that has – removed a lot of the incentive to pirate, but how has that business model as a whole compared to the one that piracy took down as far as revenue to content creators? 
Well, you hear different things from, from different people. I mean, so the top line numbers have finally begun to improve in the past couple of years because enough people are paying the subscription price. And, and so the total payments to these right holders, rights holders have actually risen in music, which is astounding, you know, after over a decade of decline. But there are some, you know, some switches about, about who wins and who loses. So it was pretty well known that uh, Taylor Swift refused to put her album 1989 on Spotify and uh, when, it, when it first came out. And that's because she felt she could make more money selling it off of Spotify. I mean, she may have had some other justifications as well. But I think the, the, the issue is that if you can sell your, your product on your own, you might be better off going alone. The other thing is the old model, you got paid when your product got sold. You know, when a person bought a permanent download or bought a CD. In the new model, you get paid when people listen to your music. Now, here's a consequence of that is that take a lot of old catalog music, which isn't being purchased much now or might not be purchased much now, but it's being played a lot on Spotify. Well, a bunch of middle and older aged artists are now getting some checks where they wouldn't have gotten checks in the past. You know, in many cases, they'll they'll say things like, oh, I got a small check and that's kind of irritating. But what's interesting is that in the U.S., uh, the owners of sound recordings don't get paid when their song gets played on the radio. The songwriters do, but the owners of the recordings do not, whereas on streaming services, they do. So there are a bunch of payments happening that wouldn't happen before. Now, again, there are many artists who say these payments are too small, and that may be right, but nevertheless, positive is bigger than zero. And the other thing I think is that you know there used to be a small number of artists who got any real crack at success. Now, many, many, many more artists can find their ways to, way to consumers. Now, some people say that uh, consumption is still very concentrated in the, in the head, and that's true, but there are quite a lot of artists who've broken through now and who wouldn't have broken through before who've become consequential in the sense that they end up you know, in bestseller lists and in the right tail of sales and streaming distributions. So there really is there's a change in who wins and, and who loses. Uh, we uh, did, ran a, a review of Mike Munger's book, uh, Tomorrow 3.0, um, which we'll have to put a link to in the show notes, um, where he talks about how the the economy of the future will focus more and more um, on streams of service versus property ownership. Because uh, for many goods, we don't really need or want ownership per se. We just want access to that thing. And so obviously, uh, um, Netflix is an example. We don't own any of the movies on Netflix. You just subscribe to a stream of service. You can watch the movies as they appear if you want. Ownership is not um, as important to as many people. And so if as, as we transfer things from the realm of ownership to stream of service access, uh, you, you, there's a real potential for you know revolutionizing how people – do, do people consume content only if they own it? Um, and I can imagine that's a problem for uh, sh- for producers as they shift from a model where you pay people based on purchases versus paying people based on a stream of service, which is why here when you talk about Spotify, um, people don't need to own the music. They just want to listen to it. Um, I, I think the the other thing that, that, that sparks my mind um, is, okay, so – you're on you have your music on spotify um actually no no there, there's a whole community of folks so you know let's say back in uh, 10 years ago i bought a bunch of music on itunes i i own a bunch of kindle books i technically own this property my understanding is with digital goods i don't actually have real ownership like i can't transfer my kindle book to someone else i can't resell it 
Um, there was a whole controversy recently with Apple and iTunes with people buying movies and then Apple disappearing those movies and saying, hey, look, if you look at the terms when you bought this movie, you don't actually own it. You just own access to it. So, I mean, is there – are we dealing with the ramifications of this new category of property that while on the one hand we consider it legally property like stuff in real life, it actually isn't. I mean, it's it's property, but it's not. Uh, could you speak to that, Joel? Yeah, sure. I mean, so there are a couple things. I mean, so there are some of these products that people want to use repeatedly. And so in the case of movies, most people don't want to watch them repeatedly unless they're children and it's, uh, you know, the mm-hmm. Lion King or something. <laughs> uh, whereas with music, people do tend to listen to it repeatedly. And so the, you know, the, although I think Spotify is a wonder or, or bundled selling is a wonderful deal for most people, you can imagine people for whom it's not. Like, let's suppose you're going to decide that there are a hundred songs that you like and you're never going to like any more songs again. Well, if you knew which hundred songs those were, you could have bought them for a hundred dollars. But if you subscribe to them, you know, that's $120 a year at $10 mm-hmm, a month. Mm-hmm. You've got to keep paying $120 a year for the rest of your life. Now, I think most people tend to, you know, discover new things that they like, but it's not completely obvious unless you're bringing new songs into your library of things you use uh, that you're going to want to pay a subscription fee as opposed to, as opposed to owning. Mm-hmm. The one other thing that's important is that under the first sale doctrine, you know, the law in the United States is if I buy a book or a movie, I, uh, physical, I can resell it. And so, you know, even though it might have a high price, I can resell it. And so effectively, I'm really kind of renting it at the price minus what I sell it for. Mm-hmm. But the new sales, the digital products can't be resold. And so that, that that's actually great news for the seller because they no longer have to compete with a resale market. Mm-hmm. To think all things being equal, that would accrue to the benefit. I mean, digitization should actually make it easier for sellers uh, to maximize profit, profitability and revenue because you, you, you can control, you can avoid the resale issue. So exactly. you can solve- I mean, except for the piracy thing, yeah. which is not trivial, but except for that, and I think that's, you know, that's been in many ways that's been combated successfully, uh, digitization allows – because the, the – the cost of providing another unit to another person is essentially zero. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so you can put together bundles. It doesn't cost you any more to put together a bundle of good stuff and you can charge people for their willingness to pay. And so that does seem to be responsible for the big success that's, the success that's happening at Spotify and, and Netflix. So we have all these new bundles, right? Uh, Netflix, Spotify, et cetera. Um, and yet the conversation uh, has about like, cable television has been all about unbundling. So there's new services like Sling and and others, which are about allowing people to kind of buy smaller and smaller packages of channels. So so why do we see in one industry, uh, cable television, we see a process of gradual unbundling, and yet in these other uh, industries, we're seeing new rebundling, if you will? Yeah, that's a... That's that, that's not really obvious to me. I mean, so I, I do I know that there are people who don't want to buy particular channels, but they're traditionally, you know, this this quest for a la carte has been kind of funny because a la carte is not the French word for inexpensive. <laughs> if you want ESP, ESPN alone, it's not going to be, you know, your cable bill divided by the 500 channels. It's mm-hmm, going to be about mm-hmm. half your cable bill for the basic subscription. Mm-hmm. I mean, the other I guess and just I don't want to entirely skirt the question, but look at how we've seen we're seeing all these people cord cutting and then going over to various platforms, um, whether it be Netflix, Hulu, HBO, uh, now Disney's coming along. I wouldn't be surprised to see an, uh, a rebundling arise because it's, 
mm-hmm. in the next five, 10 years, just because it's rather inconvenient to have to have five different platforms. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm, I'm not convinced that, that unbundling is the way of the future. I suspect bundling, uh, we'll see some rebundling. Uh, to return to something you, we were talking about earlier. So there are folks who advocate for the wholesale um, abolishment of copyright. Uh, uh, I think you call them in the book copy leftists yes. at, at one point. Um, but I can actually also imagine a, a certain variety of kind of um, uh, left libertarian, uh, more of an anarchist bent who would also advocate f- for this. Um, why Why are they wrong? Why, why is just, hey, copyright is messed up, therefore we should get rid of all copyright, all property and intellectual property? Well, so first let's make the case for the sense in which they're right. Like think about stuff that already exists for stuff that already exists, putting up, you know, particularly stuff like let's think about cultural products that are being distributed digitally. The marginal cost of serving another consumer is is zero. So if we charge a price above zero, we're going to prevent some valuable instances of consumption. And so there's the kernel of an argument why for stuff that already exists, it would be really nice just to make it freely available to everyone. And that would be a great argument, full stop, except that we do also care about the continued creation of stuff. And to the extent that that requires revenue, and certainly making Spider-Man 17 is going to require revenue because it's an expensive movie to make, uh, we can't just give it all away. We need to have some revenue and some incentives uh, uh, for people to create stuff. So I think that's the that's where the uh, the, the copy left or libertarian view breaks down. It, it makes perfect sense, but only for stuff that already exists. Well, does it make – I mean the other difference between there's say songs, um, people making music and posting it on YouTube and Spider-Man 2 is, is just – Spider-Man 2 costs hundreds of millions of dollars to produce and a song costs – I mean if you've got your guitar and a decent microphone, it ends up costing practically nothing. And so is this – does copyright really only – does that problem of stuff that doesn't exist, it seems like might only apply for the stuff that's really expensive because the business models already exist for copyright not really des- being necessary for the, the cheaper stuff? Yeah. Like so songs so, like I can yeah. – I don't need to my – I put the song up on Spotify and if I'm – you know I, I'm the artist who put it up. People are naturally going to listen to that, and if there's, you know, Spotify can say, well, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to have random other copies of this because it makes our catalog look bad if there's lots of copies of the same song. Or if I put it up on YouTube, you know, other people can put up the same video, but they may not have the same audience I do, and so naturally people gravitate to the original. And if it's selling ads alongside it, I'm still making money. So is this really would getting rid of copyright maybe just only kind of push out the extraordinarily expensive stuff? Well, so so let me – this is actually a great opportunity both to make the traditional argument and to make the central argument of the book. So the music guys actually would say and do say that they're the most investment intensive or one of the most investment intensive industries around, period. They they say that it costs them a million dollars to bring an album by a new artist to market and more than two million to bring a new album by an established artist to market. And they're not – I mean they're not lying What they're because th- their way of doing it continues to be – that you bet on a small number of, of promising seeming artists, you invest in professional studio, uh, you know, studio engineers and studio and producers, you invest in videos, you invest in what it takes to get the music onto the radio. And so it literally, uh, I think they're not lying when they say it costs them a million dollars to bring an album by a new artist to market. 
so that they would say, no, they need copyright protection every much, every bit as much as the movie industry, because uh, their total investments, even though it's it's only a million per album as opposed to a hundred million for a movie, uh, but their total investments are are enormous, and they have to finance both the failures and the successes with the revenue from the successes. So that would be the the standard argument. Now I think to get to the sort of central argument of the book, uh, the argument is that although there have been in some industries uh, revenue reductions, there have been these these cost reductions that have made it possible for a lot of creators to come straight to market. And it is really, you know, as you suggested, uh, I can make music very cheaply. So my, uh, my iPhone has on it uh, a movie st- or a music studio. It has, you know, GarageBand is on that. It's on every Mac. Uh, I can upload my music and make it saleable either traditionally through, uh, uh, through, uh, through iTunes for almost nothing. And now through Spotify, they don't seem to be a very selective filter. And so I can get distribution and the potential to make revenue with very, very, very small investment. Now, the, the, the thing is, that's not enough to give you a digital renaissance. And, and just let's think about this for a second. There's a really important feature of cultural products, which is that it's very hard to predict which ones will be successful at the time that investment occurs. Now, to see why that's so important, let's pretend for a second that it was perfectly predictable. If it were perfectly predictable, which products would win? Then if something happened, call it digitization, that reduced costs and made more products get the green light, all those products would be pretty low value. It'd all be worse than the traditional worst product. But in a world where it's hard to predict, and we live in that world, what's going to happen if, if you have digitization, which reduces the costs of bringing things to market, is a big growth in the number of new products. But then more importantly, a bunch of those products, well, certainly a lot of it will be you know, crap, to use the technical term, or uh, unappealing to many people, but some of it, because of unpredictability, will end up being very successful. It'll end up in the right tail of the sales distributions. And if that's true, then digitization could deliver us a digital renaissance instead of just delivering us a big pile of cultural silt. Now, if that story's true, it has a bunch of implications. One, the obvious one, there should be more stuff, but the more important implication is that when you look at stuff that's best-selling these days, whether it's best-selling books or you know, most streamed music or best-selling movies, that we should see a, a high and growing share of that stuff should be stuff that would never have made it through before. Now, that's a little hard to measure, but I think there's some pretty obvious ways to think about it. In music, it's music from indie labels and self-release stuff. In books, it's self-published books. In movies, it's movies not from the traditional major studios. Ditto for television, it's the stuff not from the traditional major distribution channels. And what's true in all of these industries has been not only a great growth in the number of things, but a big growth in the share of best-selling things that really would never have made it to market in a meaningful way before. And that's the, the really the kernel of, of the empirical evidence for the digital renaissance. So, so to kind of um, put this in context for our listeners, like when you talk about unpredictability, um, just, just for sake of argument, let's say uh, the movie studios under the old system could perfectly predict which 10 films would be the 10 most popular, most highest grossing, the best. The 10 best films, they could every year predict what those 10 best would be with perfect accuracy. Then if what you do, they can only afford the top 10, but that's okay because they pick the top 10. But then if you, because of a change like dig- digitization, you can now produce 20 movies every year. Well, yeah, there's a little bit of additional value, but you're only you're producing 10 more substandard movies, right? But what your point is is that 
actually they don't know they can't predict which will be the top 10 they might they might hit one out of the top 10 or, or two or three but if since that's true since they can't predict it if you expand the pool to 20 movies well some of that numbers 11 through 20 should belong on the top 10 or will if they're allowed to be made. So as you expand that pool, effectively you're buying more lottery tickets. Am I, am I thinking about that? Yeah, no, I like the way you're saying it. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what's going on. And so a lot of this stuff that, you know, you could say starts out in left field ends up among the best sellers. One of my favorite examples is in, in books. Uh, so the USA Today has a weekly bestseller list, the top 150 books of the week. And it's, it's particularly reliable in the sense that it's always included self-published things or they don't exclude self-published or electronic books. And, and, you know, before the arrival of the Kindle, which is the main platform through which people both publish and also consume self-published ebooks, uh, it was essentially 0% of bestsellers that were books that ha- had originally been self-published. But by about 2011, it was over 10%. And in some categories, in the romance category, it was over 40% of titles that had originally been self-published. I mean, that's astounding, this complete circumvention of gatekeepers. Well, this also this move it seems might bring kind of a redefinition of what success means within these artistic spheres because we we talk about so we're talking about bestsellers, chart toppers and all of that and the way that we tend to take the music industry the way we you know we think of the popular music is made by people who are now because of the popularity of the music extraordinarily rich. Um, and so the result of the distribution in this, you know, if the costliness of production is that you end up with a handful of people who are extraordinarily rich making most of the popular music and then most artists can't make a living um, because they just aren't – they're not getting enough sales or they're too risky to put any investment into. But, but with the, you know, radically declining cost of both production and distribution, it's – we may is it the case, we may end up with fewer multimillionaire artists, fewer Taylor Swifts, but a lot more people who you know the dream of every artist is to make a living off of their art, and making a living is a number much much lower than the amount of money that Taylor Swift makes. The new like, yeah. cultural middle class, right? So I'm thinking yeah. of there's there was an article years ago, and I can't remember who wrote it, but it was about the, the phrase from it was I think um, was it one thousand true fans. Was was the phrase that that if you were an artist and you could get one thousand true fans who were people who were defined as they would spend X number of dollars a year buying your stuff, whether that was buying your book or buying your T-shirts or subscribing to your email list or whatever, but if you could just find a thousand people, you could make a living. And but that thousand people is a vanishingly small number from the perspective of centralized content creation farms and the big producers and so they wouldn't care about your 1000 true fans but as an artist if you can get a thousand people on patreon kicking in a buck to you or a thousand people buying your t-shirt you can make a living and if we can get a lot more of those people that seems like a radically better world than a world where we just have a handful of very rich rock stars so i i tend to agree with that i think just to be fair that there are Folks in the content industries who have been complaining, uh, raising the concern that their incomes are falling. And I think what it tends to be, it tends to be the incumbent players, the non-star but the established incumbent players who who find uh, or at least claim that their incomes are falling in the face of you know a, a multitude of, of forces, 
whether it be initially piracy, but I think a lot of it's now competition from an enormous number of entrants who, who can't be prevented from, from entering the market. Um, so I, I don't want to be unsympathetic or sound unsympathetic to some of the creators who are seeing themselves maybe earn less than they used to, but there are a whole bunch of people who now earn something and provide a product and get the joy of, as well as the revenue from participating in the market. And so it's, it's just uh, content creators will, will all tell you. I mean, every one of these industries will tell you that, that, that they are suffering. But the odd thing is they're creating so much stuff. So it's hard sort of the evidence we would usually use for public policy to say, oh, gosh, they need relief because they're not producing anymore. Well, that's not what's happening. There's an amazing amount of production, including very high quality production. Would we expect with this, so the the amount of money available for production um, decreases if these kind of big players are earning less, but also the amount of money it takes to produce something is much less, um, that that would have the effect in the long term of like changing the aesthetics in a sense that like so in music, what we'd end up with is less music that was of the heavily produced, very expensive variety and more like, you know, the stuff people are listening to because it's what's available and where all the dynamism is, is like garage punk rock, which costs practically nothing to produce. Or we stop seeing these CGI fest um, superhero sorts of movies and it's more, you know, filmed people talking kinds of movies because those don't cost anything to produce. And so we just like gradually genres shift based on production. Well, I think the, the distribution of total stuff produced is very much the way you are describing it. But I also think that it's not that the traditional kinds of stuff doesn't get made. What the traditional players can now do is they can look and see what happens when these people who release their own stuff or release low-cost stuff and see which of those things succeed. And then they can jump on that and invest in it. In the case of books, they'll literally republish a self-published book with a, you know, with a traditional uh, publishing house. In the case of movie makers or filmmakers and musicians, there's just this minor league system where you succeed making your, your first little movie with a credit card and then you get hired up by a studio to make a bigger movie. Uh, same thing with with, with the uh, music labels. They're, the major labels are still very much in this business of producing things, but they tend to be less in the business of discovering new talent. Instead, they, they can discover talent that's proven itself because of the number of streams people have done on YouTube or whatever, and they can invest in more predictably successful things. So on the one hand, yeah, there's a whole bunch of kind of minor league, if you not in a pejorative way, but sort of self-done or low-scale stuff that's probably not going to have expensive car chases in it if it's a movie. But once you've proven yourself, then the, the big dollar guys can go ahead and invest in you and you can have big car chases in your next movie. I've always been intrigued. Uh, uh, I think Planet Money did an episode on um, the uh, Bloomhouse Studios, which has that lottery ticket, low cost, you know, spread your bets. Uh, they're a film production company. And they'll buy rights to a bunch of cheap movies. The cheaper, the better. They love the horror genre because the the costs are very, very low. And if you make a bunch of $5 million, $10 million movies, you can make 20 of those for the cost of one tentpole franchise. Well, one of those might hit. And the one that hits, you know, whether it's um, – oh, what's a famous Bloomhouse one? The, the one where there's par paranormal activity. And yeah. uh, so one of those will make – Huts three hundred million dollars. The other nineteen will 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 not make anything, 
but that's okay. You're buy they're buying lottery tickets. And then once it makes a bunch of money, then you can spend 50 million, 100 million on the sequel or on the sequels. Yeah, right. Right. So again, it's the idea of you're 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 letting these small scale new directors who might do a little indie film or there's a whole they'll do the, they'll they'll do the production, they'll do the discovery process, and then once you see what hits, the bigger studios can latch on to and, and make more money from. So I think that's that's quite interesting. Now, on this point about uh, – so so we're producing more stuff than ever before. You talk about that at length in the book. Um, there were concerns uh, – and you, you quote a few critics of digitization like uh, Andrew Keene who were, were worried that, okay, we're producing more stuff but it's going to be low-quality stuff. And uh, Keen had said something like, if you democratize media, then you end up democratizing talent. He was all wor very worried about cultural flattening. Um, so he wrote this back in 2007, complained a bunch about blogs because that's a very 2007 thing to do is complain <laughs> about blogs. Um, and I think intuitively most of our listeners are going to get why that's wrong. I mean we not only have more stuff than ever before, but every cultural critic is now currently talking about the golden age of television, the golden age of there's a uh, weird stuff gets made that wouldn't have been made a decade ago. I don't know. I just I just watched Velvet Buzzsaw on Netflix. There's no way art house dramedy meets horror film would ever have been greenlit a decade ago. But stuff yeah. like that is getting money thrown at it uh, by the big major streaming services. So I think intuitively people get okay, Keen was wrong, but but why was he wrong? And maybe you can push that out beyond just Netflix and like how do you see this happening on a well, global so, scale? Yeah, no, yeah. There, there, I think there are two senses in which he's maybe wrong, although, you know, he's not obviously wrong. But, but the one sense in which he's potentially wrong is in the commercial sense. Because of this unpredictability business that we've already talked about, uh, it, it, if, if we let everybody do stuff, yes, we get a big pile of bad stuff, but we get a few gems commercial gems. But that leaves him still potentially right about whether we get cultural garbage. So we could one could make a distinction. I'm an economist, so I tend not to, but as a human I can understand the distinction between commercially successful things and artistically important things. And you know, here I have a little bit to say about this, although again, aesthetics is not really my thing, but some of my assessments of the quality of new stuff are based on consumption and some of my assessments of the quality of new stuff are based on what elites think, what critics think. Mm -hmm. And I think in movies, for example, it's kind of stunning. If, you, if you're willing to trust uh, you know, these aggregators of movie critic information like Rotten Tomatoes at all, you know, the, the, it's a 100-point scale. And uh, if you look at the number of movies that get you know, over some particular high grade, it's, it's just skyrocketed over time. I mean, it used to be there were you know, maybe 10 movies a year that had, I forget the exact number, a 90 or an 85 on Rotten Tomatoes. And now it's 100 per year. Hmm that are getting a score like that. And that's based on the aggregations of the views of professional critics. Now, again, one could always quibble about whether the critics know anything, but I think even from the standpoint of, of, of culture, um, digitization has tended to be good. And, and let's even take it one step farther. Books are in some sense a more serious art form. I mean, personally, I'm a movie guy, but books, I would, I would concede literature may be more vulnerable to these concerns. And many critics look at the, both the production and consumption of Fifty Shades of Grey, and they say, gosh, this is the end of the world. <laughs> but I mean, in books, you don't see any reduction, let's say, in how much the New York Times notables are, what share of sales they're accounting for. You don't see 
Um, what you see is that there's growth in the share of sales that are that are attributable to these self-published or originally self-published books. But what it seems to be displacing is kind of that mass market uh, fiction category. So it's not like we're losing our souls uh, to to uh, to digitization. Mm-hmm. I mean, some people would say we should we need to wait a generation and see, and maybe that's right. But at least the early reviews uh, on digitization show it's been a commercial win. And there's really no evidence of a uh, of a critical loss. And in many ways, there's a, uh, evidence for for this being a critical bonanza. So our uh, yeah, we're we're a libertarian think tank here at Cato. Um, so our our listeners are going to be, I think, interested in thinking about this from a, a free market standpoint. Um, and as I was thinking about whether or not this is a free market or freer market success story. Um, is there any difference between, say, you know, this process of digital technology making creation and distribution cheaper, which widens both the number of creators as well as the pool of potential consumers? Um, is that any different from, say, uh, how the invention of the steam shovel allowed like canals to be widened or, or transportation networks to expand, making it cheaper to distribute goods, widening the market for both producers and consumers? I mean, in a sense, it's just just an old story about broader, freer markets? I think in many ways it is. I mean, it's a story about entry barriers declining. It used to be it was really hard to enter these markets. You needed permission from gatekeepers and you needed investment from gatekeepers. And now you don't. And so there's just so much more entry. And a lot of it's bad, but some of it's good. And so it's really just a story almost out of Act One where you get a bunch of entry and a bunch of new, a bunch of new consumer surplus you get some current, you know, incumbent players feeling pain because they face competition. And again, I, I can just imagine them screaming, wait a minute, you forgot about piracy. And piracy is different. Piracy is cheating. But putting that aside for a moment, it's a, there's a lot of competition now from many new products that's putting some pressure on, on incumbent players. And so, uh, but I think from a competition standpoint and a libertarian perspective, you'd say, no, it's just, it's just good. If people want to enter, that's going to just drive prices down and, and increase variety. But I think one thing to note, looking forward at threats to the continued renaissance is that we ha- we do have uh, great concentrations of power now in some platforms. You know, it used to be like, take music, it used to be um, there were a few labels, a few major labels, and then there were um, literally hundreds of independent radio stations and literally hundreds of independent record stores. And they were all influential, but there were hundreds of them. Mm-hmm. Well, now they're, you know, the, the Spotify and Apple Music and a handful of others play the role of both the record store and the radio station. Now, I don't see any evidence that they're behaving badly, but we certainly want to be keeping an eye on this if we're thinking about impediments to free markets. Uh, These are some very, very powerful gatekeepers. Um, And again, I I see them mostly, you know, I see them doing a lot of good things. So I'm not saying they're doing bad things, but I'm saying if we wanted to keep our eyes open, these are some things to keep our eyes open about. Well, it makes sense that it, if one of the sources of this transformation of this renaissance is that the barriers to entry are lower and cheaper, well, the barriers to exit also are. So if you get bad behavior from these platforms, yes, there's not – they're often kind of very industry dominant in a way that was harder in other sectors of the economy earlier. But it's relatively – it might be easier to leave them if, if they really um, – if they you know, behave badly. So I, I, think, I think we probably will – 
draw things to a close here. Thank you so much for your time, Joel. We really appreciate you coming on the show. Oh, it was my pleasure. And for our listeners, I'll uh, quote from the, uh, the, the last sentence of Digital Renaissance of Joel's book. Uh, sit, back, sit back, relax, and enjoy the Renaissance. Until next week, be well. Thanks for listening. Building Tomorrow is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Building Tomorrow, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.